Okie dokie. Oh. A podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are continuing to work our way through the gospel narrative. This is Gospels Part 72. Last week we started off our discussion seeing where Jesus' brothers were, I don't know if you want to call it, taunting him or teasing him about his ministry, saying that you need to go out in public and display what you're doing. Like No one who's doing marvelous things would keep it in secret and... This is all happening right around the time of the festival of Sukkot, and they're about to journey to Jerusalem, and Jesus is like, no, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go in the way that you're asking me to. And then a little bit later, Jesus is like, eh, sp- maybe Spirit led him to be like, ah, it's time to go now. <laughs> so yeah. we wrestled with that some, and then uh, the Jews were looking for him. People, there were murmurings going on. Some thought he was a good man. Some that thought that he was trying to uh, bring people away from following Torah. And then he went into the temple and started teaching, and people were marveling. Uh, But then also people were questioning his authority. Like, he hasn't been learned by anybody before, taught by anyone. Like, how is he getting this wisdom and Jesus was upset to say, like, if you actually knew the words of God, the, what what the narrative is actually talking about in the scriptures, you wouldn't be concerned about where my authority comes from because you would know that it was that my words are coming from God Himself. Yeah. Um, and then we went from there to um, the final part of our episode where Jesus is going back to a story where he healed the man at Bethesda to explain their, I guess you could call it their hypocrisy on their prioritization on thinking that Jesus is doing all of these violations on the Sabbath and he's bringing up within their own law, the law that that Moses gave them, the Torah, they violate the Sabbath to to perform circumcisions and how that's acceptable in their sight. So why... Is it unacceptable for Jesus to alleviate suffering and to care for people and to prioritize compassion and mercy to people who need it? So really, really good discussion. Um, And I was just cheering Jesus on as he was uh, (laughs) slicing the jugular, as you said last week. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, and you know what? It's a really hard thing to be consistent in the way that we think and in the way that we apply our thinking or our understanding or our beliefs or whatever, it's hard. And so, you know, it's easy to sit here this many years later reading through Scripture and and sort of picking on them, and they were totally wrong, but at some point you have to, you know, why don't you just be a little more realistic, give people the benefit of the doubt, because guess what? We're all human and we all do stupid stuff like this. So, I don't know, that's a thing too. But mm-hmm. guess what? We're going to get to see more of it. All right. <laughs> so, yeah, hang on. Or what was that from uh, Jurassic Park? Hang on to your butts. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so here we go. Uh, this is John chapter 7, verses 25 through 29. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, 
Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I came from him, and he sent me. There goes John being all mystical again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, everything John writes is hard, and it's probably maybe sparking some little memories of things that we read in earlier chapters, things that were controversial, whatever. So, the, the thing is, remember, we, you and I even had a, a little question about, okay, okay, we keep saying that they want to kill him, Jesus brings it up, who knows this, that, what, whatever. But right here at the top, the crowd... They're kind of picking up on this whole conversation, and they're connecting the dots of things that they've heard. It's kind of like, now that we know you're the one who healed on the Sabbath, oh, you really are the one that they're seeking to kill, right? We see, it's like John was laying this stuff out, and we were sort of trying to, you know, give the information in advance so you see it when it came. But now everybody's getting the idea. Yeah, Jesus is the one. They want to kill him. This is a big deal, but he's right here in town. But even this raises more confusion because how can he be here speaking openly? Why is no one actually doing anything to him? Or, I mean, they're not even saying anything to him. What's going on? And so they begin to speculate. And I just, I get such a kick out of this because this is such a picture of humans across all time. Maybe the authorities know that he really is the Christ. And that's why they're not saying anything or doing anything, right? And that just like people today, it's the same. But anyway, this particular crowd, it's just, it's more confusion. And we've talked about, uh, Samuel, I know this, this popular expectation, the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. That came from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And we're all, I think, Pretty familiar with that. However, there was another idea, an alternative idea, that came even from the very same verse. And that was that his place of origin would be a mystery. So what I did, Samuel, I just I carved off just the last little bit from Micah 5 2. Read that for us. Whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Yeah. So for whatever reason, I know it talks about, you know, blessed are you, Bethlehem, whatever. It's all in there, but they hung on to that last little part. And so they're they're very interested in this idea that there's a mysterious origin to this Messiah. And, you know, if you wanted to, if you wanted to go outside your Bible, you could always grab First Enoch. Uh, it's in 46 uh, verses 1 through 5. It's also going to talk a little bit about it. It's not super clear, but whatever, it's there. Anyway, this particular crowd, they seem to prefer this idea of a mysterious origin. And since Jesus' origins were known, or at least 
Everybody thinks they know something about where he came from. But since that's true, well, then he can't be this Christ. They just can't. It can't be. They couldn't comprehend his divine origin, you know, the mysterious one. Now, Samuel, we're reading the Gospel of John. Hasn't John let us in on a little secret? Uh, Yeah, it wasn't all the way back in chapter one about the word. Exactly. Yeah, we know about his divine origin, but... You know, just let's put ourselves in their shoes. The people here at this time, okay, they probably weren't picking up on this. They didn't know about this. So they were confused. They didn't know what to think. But Jesus, you know, in his, in his way, when he seems to know what's going on in people's minds and people's hearts, he recognizes this, and he, he actually begins to address it out loud while he's teaching. He acknowledges that they know him, they know who he is, and they know where he is from. And we'll find out later, we're not so sure that everybody really knows. But he turns the conversation from this idea of where he came from to something more like who he came from. He wants to get across this point that, look, God sent me. In fact, it was God's idea to send me here. God is true. And if you actually knew God, then you would recognize me as Messiah. And, and it's such a simple equation. I just, it's, it's kind of uh, convicting, I think, for a lot of people. If you, if you actually understood God, there would be no question in your mind, this guy is Messiah. But Jesus continues, you don't know him. And that's why you're confused. And then Jesus adds uh, a final statement. I don't know. I guess it, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. I sort of take it like an invitation. Jesus is saying, I know God, I know him, because I came from him. And I think sort of the inference in there, you could know him too, if you would only listen to me, hear my message of repentance and the kingdom. It's why God sent me. So, it's starting to, the the drama's starting to build here, Samuel. Mm Mm-hmm, for sure. You feeling it? Yes, bass drums in the background. (laughs) <laughs> right. Yeah. So, all right. So, so that happens. And then, uh, well, the story's just going to keep going. So let, let's go to the next part. John chapter seven, now verses 30 and 31. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Okay. (laughs) Just a second ago, everybody was kind of complaining that, hey, nobody's arresting him. This is the guy. And now all of a sudden we see, but they are trying to arrest him. But the reason is because, you know, his hour had not yet come. So (laughs) what's going on here? Jewish leaders, uh, simple fact, they did still want to arrest him. And why? Why was that? Because he could so easily stir up a crowd, any crowd, this crowd, into some sort of revolution. And that was that potentially super, super bad. Rush, uh, rush. The Romans could crush not just this little revolution, but like so much of Israel 
And so this was dangerous stuff. So he had to be stopped. But it, it's difficult to tell. I mean, you look at the text, maybe, maybe the text is, is suggesting that they couldn't arrest him because, I don't know, they were hindered in some sort of supernatural way. I, I, I don't know. Or, or maybe it's just that, as we've seen many times before, maybe Jesus really is just kind of ninja-like in his ability to slip away. I mean, there's that, maybe. But either way, somehow, some way, they could not lay a hand on him because his hour had not come. And what's important to note about that is, think about all the people there. It's not like they knew anything about his hour. So it wasn't like they were hindering themselves. Yeah, the thing is, we really would like to arrest him, except we just happen to know it's not his time. Well, they're not doing that. So something is hindering them. We don't really know what, whether it's supernatural or just Jesus's quick action or whatever. Somehow, I don't know, they're hindered. It's all we know. And then still, or maybe you would say in addition, I don't know, there were many who were convinced, and they figured he had to be the Christ. They couldn't imagine a Christ figure that would somehow do more signs and miracles than this Jesus had done. And, you know, to be fair, I think we should accept that statement, you know, just as the positive statement it is. It's it's unadulterated good, no caveats, right? Whatever. Okay, But for us, for our own sakes today, it's always good that we remember signs and miracles alone aren't enough. To be Messiah, uh, and very similar to the way we think about to be a true prophet or something like that, what he says must come to pass. He has to point the nation to Torah, to God, Uh, His message of repentance and of the kingdom, his righteous life, all of these things were easily as important. Well, okay, actually, they were immeasurably more important as any of these signs. But to them, right there on that day, John's writing about, you know, the signs were enough for them. So are you saying with verse 31 that the the way that the language is being evoked, that statement in quotations, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? That it's their way of saying, how could this not be the Christ? Because the works that we're seeing this Jesus of Nazareth do are just as great and marvelous as what we picture the Messiah to be. Or like my first initial reading of it was I struggled with it because the first half of the verse said, okay, many people believed in him. And then it almost seems like they redacted a little bit in the second half where it says, well, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And it's like, well, wait, I thought you said you believed in him. Now, why are you speculating when the Christ comes if you're believing that he is the Christ? Yeah, I hear what you're saying, but I'm going to, I'm going to go with, uh, no, I think, I think it's more like when John says, yet many of the people believed in him, the following sentence is John showing us an example of how they believed or how they expressed that belief out loud or whatever. And so, yeah, they're saying when the Christ appears, 
could will he do more signs than this or could he possibly isn't this enough proof mm-hmm. that's the way i take it gotcha doesn't make me right but there you go that's what i think okay so now where are we going oh i think this is gonna get good so we're still in john that's gonna be a while did i mention that <laughs> Chapter 7, verses 32 through 36. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? So, uh, in, in some sense, remember how we talked about already, they just said they wanted to arrest him, and, and he couldn't, his hour had not come. It's almost, it's kind of like, hey, here's a little more info. Here's what was going on when they sought to arrest him, but they couldn't, right? <laughs> so, treat it as the same account rather than it being an additional an attempt Well, right you know, the... yeah, I, I, it's a good question. It definitely could be. A separate instance or, you know, I mean, it could have been an hour later or I, I don't think it's a day later because a lot of stuff goes on here. But yeah, I'm kind of reading it as if it's it's continuing on. It's more like John just giving more detail about the things that are happening. But you got these chief priests and the Pharisees. And again, is it all the Pharisees, Samuel? It's some of them. Yeah, it's just some. And they can see that the people are being affected by this guy. And the thing is, they don't like it. So, they decide they're going to act. And they actually send officers to arrest him. So, they don't just want to arrest him now. I mean, if we're, they're doing it. They sent people, go get this guy. (laughs) But then, (laughs) Jesus starts talking. And, again, this little section of John, it seems over and over, there's, there is a difficulty about knowing exactly who is there and exactly who it is he's talking to. It continues here. We're not sure. But you can imagine uh, the chief priests and the Pharisees, I mean, they're at least within earshot. Maybe they aren't, but it, I mean, it certainly is possible that they are. Maybe he's actually speaking to them because they can hear. Or, even if they're not, you, you can certainly imagine it's a crowd of ordinary Judeans or maybe some of the other uh, religious leaders that were already there teaching, whatever. Maybe he's speaking to them. It could be both or all of the above, whatever. But John uses the phrase, the Jews. And we know that most consistently that has just represented the religious leaders, the leaders there in Jerusalem. And in this context, I mean, it's a good guess, certainly as good a guess as any, but It's not quite as clear as we've seen it in other places. Whoever the audience is, in some sense, I don't know how much it matters to us. It would just be nice if we knew. Whoever the audience is, they don't really understand what Jesus means. And of course, we got a couple options here. 
Sometimes Jesus speaks, and he really is just outside the box, and it's hard to know what the heck he's saying. But then we also have John, the writer of this gospel, and he loves to have people not understand in his stories. The big kicker, though, is that usually John does it because he wants to follow it up with some sort of clarity, some sort of explanation, and that really doesn't happen here. So it makes me think this is probably Jesus is just speaking in some sort of hard-to-understand way. He just is. Yeah, my mind often works illustratively, and whenever you're going through this part, I couldn't help but imagine Jesus like ignoring the leadership that's within earshot doing these things like making these strategic chess moves to finally go uh seek him and grab him um and then he's talking to the the locals that are nearby and it's almost as if the the leaders and the locals know of the gravitas of Jesus's teachings i mean we saw in the preceding verses about them marveling at what he's able to say about God's Torah. And yeah. it, it made me think of cross-reference, um, Isaiah fifty-four seventeen, where it says, No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. And other oh. translations say you shall silence every voice. And yeah. I'm just getting this picture of my head of like, Every time Jesus decides to speak, everyone who is like within earshot, like regardless of whatever preconceived actions they were about to do, they just stop because like, oh man, I know when he says something, it's going to be big. Yeah. (laughs) Just like his words just stopped them right in their tracks. Yeah. Great reference, Samuel. I love that one. That's so good. Yeah. and, And that is an image. See, and we've talked about this before. The, the the Gospels, and especially in John, but it's really everywhere, they're written in such a way that they leave room for you to work on this in your head, trying to figure it out, trying to know it for yourself. And, and so there's enough detail to keep you on track, but there's also enough room in between the detail that you can create those images in your mind. And I think it's important that we do so. Sometimes we'll get it wrong, but sometimes we'll get it righter. <laughs> You know, so that's good. It's good. Good, good. So uh, what what else is he doing in here? He's, uh, you know, he's talking about, you know, he's going to go somewhere. They cannot come, all that kind of, so in hindsight, now we can easily recognize the description of Jesus's resurrection. I mean, this, this makes it sound pretty easy, I think, for us. I'll be here a little while. And we know that it's about six months until Passover. And then I'm going to him who sent me. He's going to be resurrected, returning to God in heaven, going to that heavenly temple. It's awesome. You will seek me and you will not find me. I actually find this one very interesting, Samuel, because in one sense, you could say, uh, you're not going to find me because I'm not going to be on this earth, right? That That's one. Or you could look at it and say, You're going to seek me, and you're not going to find me because you're going to remain blind even after God endorses me through resurrection. You're still not going to be able to find me because you're you're blinded, right? And 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 I think that's a very real thing. We've seen that work out. It's that partial hardening that Paul talks about in Romans uh, in in the Jewish people. So, uh, and the next thing he says, "Where I am, you cannot come." So, and even that, there's multiple ways to look at that. You can't come search for me 
because he's not on the earth. Uh, You can't come because uh, you're not going to repent. You're not faithful. You're not loyal. So you're not going to get to, quote unquote, follow in his footsteps kind of a thing. Or you could even, uh, we could talk really, really big picture stuff and say, where I am, you cannot come, is like, well, because the realm of man, those who are only man, well, the realm of man is in creation, always. Jesus is that exception because he's, you know, God and man, whatever, that kind of thing. I don't know. But anyway, it's not making a lot of sense to them. That's for sure. And John uses uh, the confusion of his listeners, and and I don't know. I don't know if John meant to do this or not, but this is the way I kind of see it. It's like John is including what would appear to be some sort of absurdity to Jesus's opponents. They're like, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to go out in the dispersion and you're going to teach to the Greeks? And to them, that was, oh, come on, that's completely absurd. And that's why they said it. But it's so classic because as the story continues, we get to the end of the gospel and into the book of Acts, we find out it turns out to be true. I mean, what's he going to do? Go teach among the nations? Yes. For this time in this audience, the story is written. They would have, that was so absurd. And yet in hindsight, it's exactly what he did, except that it was after his resurrection. It was after his ascension. He did it through his apostles, the body, which by the way, that's who we are. We are the dispersion. We are the Gentiles. We are the Greeks, if you want to say it that way. And we are also apostles. So we are spreading this word. It's so great. But anyway, I kind of think it just makes John a genius writer. That's me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I have so many of these moments where probably people like Samuel stop saying this. We get it. But reinforcement (laughs) is a good teaching tool. That's right. Um. This absurdity irony that comes true later in the story. Let's just remind ourselves this does not mean that Jesus and God in general, he force, forsook the Jewish people, the chosen people, the covenantal people in order to move on to the Gentiles who would accept it. It's like, no, like he went to his covenantal people first and then they chose to not accept it and then he went further like farther away and that going out to the ends of the earth is actually going to bring the chosen people back into the story at the end so just keep yourself reminding of that that this isn't replacement of anything it's just inclusion of another group wait a minute are you saying that the chosen people the covenant people are Still, the chosen people and the covenant people? As the Kool-Aid man says, oh yeah. (laughs) Are you saying that God didn't replace them with the Gentiles, but instead has grafted the Gentiles into his chosen people? I believe so. (laughs) You crazy. (laughs) Crazy like a fox. Yeah, you're right, Samuel. It is good. We we have to keep saying it because the other story has been told so much, believed by so many. And at least from our perspective, it just doesn't make sense. 
and it makes God to be unfaithful. It makes God to be a liar. And these are things we simply cannot tolerate. Mm-hmm. Just can't be so. So yeah. Yeah. I do want to go Glad back you're reinforcing really qu- them. Yeah. 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 Um, really quickly before we move on to the next section, verse 34, I thought it was interesting. Jesus is phrasing on the first example, you will seek me and you will not find me. That That seems to give off a future tense, like, this is what you're going to do. Yeah. But the second half, it comes across very present tense. Where I am now, you yeah. cannot come. And I even looked at the Greek word while you were going through this, and the am is present tense. So it's like, what is yeah. Jesus getting at here? Is he like exploring, hinting at that sacred overlap between the, the earthly and the the heavenly that's like existing within his own being right now. Like, I don't know. That's, it's, it's very weird language. Oh yeah. But it's awesome. And now it's great that you pointed that out, that Jesus is saying this. And if we were to look at the gospels as a whole, he does it, you know, here and there, he does things like that. What's interesting is that when people start reading Paul, the apostles letters, Paul, the apostle does it all over the place and causes no end of confusion for people and wrong thinking and bad ideas. If we ever get there, hopefully we can correct some of that stuff, right? <laughs> but yeah, it's it's such a great point. And and the way that that we can sort of relate to it is the the way that we have gotten into that idea of the now and the not yet. And again, see, we're always looking at it in hindsight, and that I think makes it even more confusing. But we know that the kingdom is now. And yet we also know that it's coming in its fullness. We can only reach out, kind of get a foretaste, that kind of thing. And this is similar kind of language. There's there's that dual reality of the now and the not yet. And Jesus is speaking to it. Paul's going to speak. It's great. So yeah, good for pointing that out. Like it. Anything else? No, I, I believe I'm satiated until the next <laughs> chunk. Well, here's the next chunk. John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay. So, now you got to try to get all this in your head. This this is such a great picture. Uh, You Remember, we're at the Festival of Sukkot. This is like that week-long party, all of that. It's a big deal. It's all been going on. And this is the final day. Now, they call it the great day, and there's a lot of controversy about that. Are we talking about day seven, or are we talking about, you know, the eighth day? But I think there's a lot of good reason to just sort of go with the seventh day. We'll talk about that more. Anyway, this is the final day. And, and well, I'm suggesting it's the final water-pouring ceremony. Now, this ceremony, we talked about it a little bit. I I found a little more information about it. It was remembering the water from the rock in the wilderness. 
That was back in Numbers chapter 20, verses 2 through 13. And Samuel, here's a little tidbit that most people don't know. In Jewish tradition, how much water came out of that rock? Ooh. Did he knock on it and it spewed water for a day? Or what, what happened? Remember? Well, uh, my brain wants to tell me that it was like continuously flowing. Yeah. They, in Jewish tradition, they carried that rock around. And that, that rock just kept pouring water all of the years that they were in the desert. <laughs> now, I'm not claiming to know if that's true or false or whatever, but that was the way they talked about it, remembered it. Okay. So this ceremony is remembering the water from the rock. And that's a great image. Doesn't matter if you believe it or not. That's a great image. It also symbolized uh, the hope of messianic deliverance. We can go back to Isaiah 12, 3. Uh, Samuel, why don't you just read that? With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Yeah. So they, this ceremony that reminded them of this, it, 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 uh, uh, I guess it was like a, a foreshadowing of the salvation that they hoped was to come. And it, when we talked about this, it was associated with God providing rain in the coming year. Uh, but it also looked forward to the kingdom. And, and what's important about the kingdom is that all nations were supposed to join in this festival of Sukkot. When the kingdom, the thousand-year reign is going on in earth, that's what's supposed to happen. And just, why don't you read some of this, Samuel? Go back to Zechariah chapter 14, read verses 16 through 18. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord affects the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. Now, what's interesting about that is, number one, it talks about, you know, all the families of the earth are supposed to go up. But Zechariah 14 was actually read aloud during the first day of the festival. So all of these things kind of tie together. So again, here we are, big party. It's the water pouring ceremony. Now, the, the gospel text, as I mentioned, it's not, it's not completely explicit. I mean, we can't be guaranteed we know, is it the seventh day or the eighth day? But it does seem to suggest that we're in the midst of the seventh day water pouring ceremony. That's kind of what, what seems to be going on. And this is pretty much the culmination of the festival. Of course, the eighth day follows, but you get what I mean. They've made their way as a group. They go down to the pool of Siloam. The priest is dipping out the water. They all kind of make their way back. The priest is now pouring out the water. And in the midst of this crowd and this ceremony, Jesus stands up and he cries out. And I mean, you know, he cries out. So it's obviously a big crowd, but he does that thing. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
And you have to imagine, just like when he's saying that, you could hear a pin drop, like the expectation for the priest having that water in his hand and that pitcher and getting ready to pour it out as an offering for the expectation of the next oh, harvest. Yeah. Like, and then for Jesus to like break that silence by saying that, that would have just been unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the tie in, right. It, all this stuff we just talked about with the water ceremony. And what is he saying? If anyone thirsts, come to me and drink rain or water generally represented life. And God was the source of all water. And so Jesus was claiming to this crowd that he was the source of rain, the source of water, and therefore he was the source of life. If you were thirsty, you only needed to come and drink. And we already know from John chapter 6, he's talking about abiding in him. Not right. I mean, he's not like actual water. So drink meant something. It was abiding in him. You could go back if you wanted to, and you could listen to the Gospels number 55 through 58, because John chapter 6 was rough. But yeah, that's what he's talking about. If you're thirsty, come take a drink. And this, to your point, it had to be a shocking moment. Think of it. Some were probably offended. Others were probably comforted. And you must imagine everything in between, everything in between. So yeah, classic moment. And just contextually thinking like after everything that has just happened up until this point, like people have just tried to arrest him like before this story (laughs) happened. And then Jesus has the audacity to like do this now, like what you said a few weeks back about that defining moment after the um, transfiguration where it seems like he had his sight set for Jerusalem. Right. And there was a shift in tone with Jesus. Like, this is a good example of like, he's not holding anything back right now. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's a little confusing because, you know, we had the thing where, oh, he wasn't going to go and then he ended up going and then he ends up teaching and now he's doing this. I mean, it's all, it's a little bit weird and we got to, we got to leave some room for, look, we weren't there. We don't know what's really happening, but at least we can try to to create that image in our head and see how crazy this really was. This was really neat. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I feel like I, I have to at least say this, just to be fair. You know, there are those who actually do argue and say, no, 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 Paul, the, the story that you were telling, where it's on the seventh day and the water ceremony and all that, you're wrong. It actually happened on the eighth day, what they call the Shemini Etzeret right? Well, maybe, maybe it was. If it was, then that would have put the focus on the prayers for rain, because that was a big part of the eighth day, instead of on the water pouring ceremony itself. Okay, maybe, I don't know. But for me, that's just, it's such a weaker story. The, 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 the one that we have just told, I think is so impactful compelling that, I don't know, that that's the one that works for me. Uh, but then another weird thing's happened in here, Sam. He says, in verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Well, here's the problem. There's no real good match for that in the Old Testament. <laughs> so when he says, as the scripture has said, nobody's really certain about where he's talking about. 
Now, some think that might also come from Zechariah 14. Uh, I think it's 14, 8. It's the closest. It does, you know, I mean, again, I told you that they read it out loud, so it was a part of the festival, but it's still kind of a stretch. Why don't you go ahead and read that one again, Samuel, or read it, Samuel. On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. So how do they think that this connects? Why do, why do they even put this up as a potential possibility? Well, here's the thing. If that reference really ties into this somehow, then what this verse would suggest is that when he talks about his heart, out of his heart, well, that would kind of need to refer to the temple. And we know that that's a real image, a real expectation, right? We even read some about that in Revelation. But is that really what's meant here? Is he talking about the water pouring out from the temple in the, in the kingdom? I don't know. Uh, how, there's another one, though. Others think that uh, the text should be rendered in a way that makes his heart, out of his heart, that that means the Messiah's heart. Now, to be fair, that's also a true expectation. But again, that same question, is that really what's meant here? It's hard to know. And then, finally, you've got the others who believe that his heart refers to the heart of the believer or all believers. And, I mean, to be fair, this is also a true expectation. And it connects nicely with an earlier story in John's gospel. Do you remember which one, Samuel? Uh, wasn't it with the woman at the well about... Exactly. Give me some of that water, sir. Yes, Exactly. And so that, you know, you're going, well, come on, it's John's gospel. He said something about it earlier. He's saying something about it now. That's a pretty good connection. So I don't know. I want you to read a couple things, Samuel. Just get us on the page, because I think what I'd like to do is say, look, for me, I come down on the side of we are talking about the heart of every believer, okay? But let's read this. Isaiah 55, 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Okay, and then uh, John four, ten. Read that. Jesus answered her, "If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water.'" Yeah, there's that woman at the well story, and then let's do the big finish on that same story. John four fourteen. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Yeah. Now, if you wanted to, you could go back to listen to our episode titled The Gospels Number 20, uh, and you could hear more about that. But for me, I, I, I got, I've got that woman at the well story, what Jesus was saying there, and it's a very reasonable expectation within this text and all that. So, I really lean toward the the idea that, look, when you, quote unquote, drink from Messiah, abide in him, etc., then you also uh, spring up or well up. See, the thing is, we know the true source of the water is God. We also know that that source of water in other scriptures is said to 
to come from the temple. That's a thing that's expected. We also know that it's a, a, a figurative or symbolic image of, of Messiah. We know that. But we don't just receive that water. It also overflows. It flows out from us as well. And I, I think I've joked about this before from a church I used to go to. Everybody say, I'm a hose. I'm a hose. Exactly. Yeah. It comes from God to us. We are filled, blessed, whatever you want to call it. But it also flows through and from us. We are both a receptacle and a source of this living water. To me, this is such a glorious image of the body of Christ. I'm not sure we live up to it at least not the way I see it in the scriptures, but it's a great, great image. Mm-hmm. And what you said fits really well with the preceding verses within this part of the festival, because when you're thinking about the the pouring of the water, the offering yeah. to God to provide for the nation as a whole for the next year, like they're coming... They're approaching water with a sense of scarcity involved. Like, we know that we don't have any control over how the earth precipitates. Like, God alone is the one who can give us this. And, like, we could go into this new year and it could be abundance, or we could go into it and it could be drought all year. But it's just really interesting that Jesus addresses that directly, but, like, on a different spiritual level like eternal kingdom level to be like there's coming a day when like these pleas this anticipation that you're hoping for to be able to sustain your life for the next year like you won't have to worry about that because it it literally is going to be effervescent out of everything overflowing everywhere yeah it is such a cool picture and i i I was looking at the text (laughs) uh, while you were talking and and there's this little bit at the end uh, verse 39 when john said now this he said about the spirit and so in case you were imagining this water overflowing and so you're walking down the street like a crazy person with your pants all wet or something you know it's not that (laughs) it's we're talking about the spirit and and so when the covenant is in its fullness, okay, so we're now we're imagining after the resurrection, kingdom, world to come kind of stuff, all will be filled with the Spirit. And that is just another way of saying something else, Samuel. When we say filled with the Spirit, that's the same thing as the Torah is written on the mind and on the heart. That's not a connection people usually make, but that's what we're talking about. So, now we can imagine when when John writes this he said about the Spirit, well, I think John here is referring to Pentecost. Now, from our perspective, that's coming in the future of our study, but from John's perspective when he was writing this, that was well in his past. So, he's talking about Pentecost, and, you know, some of the other instances where we saw people filled with the Spirit, like, you know, the uh, whether they were Samaritans or Gentiles or whatever, we see it. And here's the thing. It wasn't as if there was no spirit before. The spirit of God had moved among the people, the Jews especially, but it wasn't even entirely limited to the Jews. We see that in your Bible too. But this is referring to a special outpouring. 
And, and we go back to this idea of the now and the not yet. The new covenant, it has indeed been inaugurated. The kingdom is in one sense. And so this, the, 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 the outpouring of the Spirit, this special outpouring, it's a sign of that. Now, we read about it in Acts. It's totally awesome. But we still have to remember that that is not the fullness. That is yet to come. But this outpouring, uh, it seems to be what Jesus was speaking of, at least according to John's perspective. And it's, it will be, I guess, life to those who receive it, and it'll be a source of life to others as it overflows from within us. So, yeah, we talked about it with water, and that's a great image, but now almost uh, more accurate or more more specific or something like that, it, it's the Spirit. And so it's that same image, but now it's not water, it's the Spirit. And this is something we, as Christians, should be experiencing living in some sense right now today and every day. It's a real thing. It's it's that same beautiful picture. I just love it. Yeah, it's good. And I was wrestling a minute ago thinking like, well, it seems like Jesus fast-forwarded or caught, got caught in between. Like I was fast-forwarding to the kingdom and the world to come, and you were suggesting that it's like earlier than that at Pentecost. But if you if you read the rest of 39, that helps so much rather than if you just leave it at, now this he said about the Spirit, because that second half, like, whom yeah. those who believed in him were about to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. That yeah. that sounds like Pentecost too. Yeah. So yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah, I. Uh, it, there's always a difference between what I see and what's in my head and what comes out of my <laughs> mouth. So thanks for clearing that up. <laughs> That's why you got a co-host. <laughs> That's right. You know. If only these these episodes were longer and we could go slower through all the scriptures, maybe we could get all this stuff out. <laughs> I can some hear some people in the background, oh no, <laughs> not slower, anything but that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, you could just say we do have our own niche. Yeah. Not many people go as slow as we do, but whatever. It's good. Some people will like it. That's the ones we're looking for. Let's do one more little bit, Samuel. John chapter 7, verses 40 to 43. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said, that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. So there was division among the people over him. I, I just think this is hilarious, but let's take it one step at a time. So the people are hearing Jesus. And remember, it's this big festival and he's shouting out this crazy stuff right in the middle of the ceremony. Had to be pretty impactful. And as it turns out, some. Some are convinced. I mean, this really is, you know, the prophet like Moses. Or some went even further. No way, man. This really is the Christ, the Messiah. And yet, others, they, they weren't quite buying what he was selling. They, they wanted to be sure, and, you know, kudos to them for that. 
that the thing was he had to agree with Scripture in every way that they knew. And to them, from their perspective, he didn't. Why? Because he was from Galilee, specifically Nazareth. Now, I don't know if you remember this, Samuel. It wasn't that long ago in our little discussion here that they were complaining that they knew where he was from and therefore he couldn't be the Messiah. Remember, that was because they were focusing in on the, oh, he's supposed to have this mysterious origin. And now all of a sudden, still John telling the same story, but now all of a sudden, you know, uh, now they're arguing that he's supposed to come from David, you know, be uh, in, in the line of David, and that he's supposed to come from Bethlehem. Now, what's funny about that, Samuel? He fits both of those categories exactly based on his genealogy and yeah. Luke. Yeah, he actually did come from David, and he was born in Bethlehem. The thing is, apparently, they didn't know that. They had bad info. They seemed to understand, uh, and and I don't know, I guess this is an assumption, but I mean, what's the only other logical thing? They must have assumed that he was born and raised in Nazareth. I mean, it's a reasonable mistake, but we know that he wasn't born there. He just grew up there, lived there. And then I always wonder this, and we've seen it, so you know, it's not like it's a surprise to me, but why was his birth story not more well-known? I mean, at the moment it was happening, those shepherds were getting to come and they were telling everybody, and you know, I mean, it was kind of a big deal at the time, but it seems like that story just sort of got lost. I mean... Were Mary and Joseph really that good at keeping it quiet? I mean, was it quieter than we maybe want to imagine or something? I, I, it, I don't know. It's just good for helping us to see or to remember how difficult it is to put ourselves in the shoes of the people of this time and place. We don't know what they know. And it's hard because we know so much and we get to look back with hindsight. But anyway... They're confused. It can't be the guy because he's, he's not from Bethlehem, but we know that he really is. Anyway, the people remain divided. Maybe he is the Messiah, maybe not. But still, and, and this is going to end up being important, seeing this event, this, this whole ceremony thing, these last few days of the festival, and seeing the response of some of the people it's going to be important for us to hang on to that because that's how we're going to better understand how it can even be that just six months from now, great crowds are going to greet him coming into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. And these are the stories that are helping us see, oh yeah, he did go to Jerusalem, and he did talk to people, and some things happened, and guess what? Some people were buying into the story, right? So some are convinced he's Messiah, and uh, I'm suggesting that all told, it turns out to be a rather large number, and and that's what these stories are for, to help us see how that came about. Mm-hmm. That's good. Um, and if you're wanting to go back and study... um. Jesus' genealogy that links to David and Bethlehem. It's Matthew 1. I misspoke earlier. I think I said Luke, but it, Matthew, it contains his genealogy. Yeah, they both do. It's in two mm-hmm. places. Boy, we talked about that. Yeah. <laughs> that was a rough one. But yeah, 
Anyway, uh, honestly, the next section's pretty long. We're, I think uh, this is our stopping point. So we're done. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.